0: to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. All right, well, welcome, everybody. We are, we are going to go through Hebrews chapter 8 today, and we're actually going to finish an entire chapter in one Sunday. Yep, sure. And I... Oh, a yeah. <laughs> oh, lot. <laughs> so, we, we, have been, we have been going pretty slow through Hebrews, but I'm telling you, we're going to get through a chapter today, and, you know, the, the notes are not as thick as they appear. I made the mistake of printing on the heavier paper, so just bear with us, but this will be fun. We're going to go through this. Before we start, I do want to just pray over all of us that the anointing of the Holy Spirit would teach us everything, and we've, we have much to discuss in Hebrews 8 and much to glean and learn from the Lord in this, and Lord, I, I just come before you. And God, I pray your anointing upon this message, upon your word. God, there is so much going on in our world today. We need you desperately. We are anxiously awaiting a righteous king to take his seat on the throne of David in Jerusalem. And Lord, as we look to that day as your bride, as your church, we pray that you would continue to teach us everything and that your word would resonate and not return void in our lives. That you would use it to correct us, to strengthen us, to shape us. And Lord, to give us direction and guidance in the days ahead. So we love you and we pray your blessing upon this time, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to start out before we get into Hebrews 8 and just say how overwhelming it is that the Lord moved in the Supreme Court this week yeah. for... Yeah. And, and I know I've, I've talked about this before, but there's... When a pregnancy occurs, and I want you all to think about this from a scientific standpoint, when a pregnancy occurs, there are, there are two cells all of a sudden. There's one cell that splits into two, and they're identical and two go to four, and four go to eight, and eight to 16, and they're all identical. And they continue replicating and duplicating. And all of a sudden, a group of those cells start to form lungs, and a heart, and a backbone, and a skull, and a brain, and tissue. They're all identical cells. So how do they know what to become? And it's because scientifically you can prove that information has to come from an outside source. And that's exactly what the word, of, uh, the word of God declares, that you are fearfully and wonderfully made in the womb by your creator. And at that second, when a pregnancy occurs, it's exactly like when God was reshaping and forming the earth in Genesis 1, and he, his first quote is, let there be light. It's another quote, it's let there be life. And there is an explosion of life that occurs, where time and eternity meet, and there are Billions and billions of rays of light that breathe life into nothing in that instant. And then God works, and he forms, and he shapes, and he fashions someone in his image that's made to serve him. And it is one of the greatest abominations in the Bible, frankly, that we think we have the right to terminate it, and in that, and it's child sacrifice uh, it's been there since the beginning with the Israelites, all through the Old Testament when you read about child sacrifice to Moloch, that's exactly what they were doing, is just murdering babies. And so we've been praying about this for a long time as a, as a Bible study. I've been praying about it for a long time in my personal time, and to see it actually happen is one of the greatest joys I've had in walking with the Lord, frankly, because that those altars need to be torn down and life restored to our, to our land. So it's Second Chronicles 7.14, right? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, God will hear from heaven, act, and heal our land. And that's exactly what we saw. So don't give up the fight. Just know that prayer takes time. Prayers, you can, you can pray something decades ago, God doesn't forget it but he's relying on our on his people to act and to be a part of that war with him. So let's move let's keep praying for it and pray against the next thing. Let's keep moving down that list of of healing our land. So amen, it's just an amazing amazing move of God and what a time to rejoice in him. So with that being said, we'll dive into Hebrews 8, and there's a lot to learn about a better ministry that we have because of the better ministry that Jesus has. And in Hebrews 8, there are some deep things here, so we need to really rely on the Holy Spirit and that anointing to teach us everything, because there's, there is a new covenant that you are under thanks to Jesus. And we're going to learn a lot about that today. So lean on the Holy Spirit as your teacher, not me. And we're going to take all of this to the Lord from 1 John 2, and 28. The anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie. And even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. And now little children abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. I am still always shocked in that 1 John 2.27 has been kind of my guiding as I've studied the Bible for a long time, but the next verse, how it links to the mission statement that Jesus wrote for the church to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride for Jesus' return, it's just incredible how he's, he linked those two together so we're going to have, we will have confidence at his appearing. When he calls us home, we'll have confidence because we've been standing on our faith, studying the word of God, and we will be an unashamed bride as a result. Not one that's lukewarm and bows the knee to the world, but one that stands out separate from the world. Jesus changed the entire world with 12 guys. And he can do it with a, with a couple hundred and a small remnant of people In a city just the same so on the outline we're still in this uh, new and better priestly covenant in Hebrews it goes really from 613 through 1025 and we're going to take all of chapter 8 today like I mentioned so we're we're approaching the end of the book slowly what I want you all to remember and be reminded of the entire book of Hebrews is structured around these five warnings to the believer there it starts with the danger of drifting from Hebrews 2 and then it, it transitions to the danger of hardening the heart from Hebrews 3, 7 through 413. Then it's the danger of failing to mature, Hebrews 5, 11 through 620. So it's a progression. And we'll get into the fourth warning in a couple more chapters. But remember, each warning is there for us as the believer. This book is the book of Hebrews is not written to the unbeliever. It's a book written on what you do once you are saved. How do you progress in your walk to maturity? That's the key. And at each warning is building on the other one. So the danger of drifting, you start to slowly drift away and lose your grip on Jesus. Then you start to harden your heart a little bit. And there's, there's correction. God sends people around you. The Holy Spirit starts convicting you. But there's a hardening of the heart. And out of that, you begin to fail to mature and once you fail to mature, Hebrews 6, like we talked about, as long as you are committing willful sin, it's impossible to return a brother or a sister to repentance. And that's, we covered that in that third warning in Hebrews chapter 6. So remember the outcome of that from Revelation. You do not want this from Revelation 3.16. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Those are harsh words from Jesus. Because Jesus has a responsibility that is tied to his name. And that responsibility is walking in truth, in light, in studying the word of God. And again, it's one of my favorite of of what we call the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not take the Lord thy God's name in vain. When you become an ambassador of the king, you cannot take his name in vain. He wants you to do something with it. Don't be lackadaisical and lukewarm when you become a Christian You're taking on the name of the king, so act like it. So the warnings are in place because God is longing for that deep relationship, right? He's sounding the alarm not to drift, and we've got to stay steadfast, and it's all because there is a kingdom coming, and this is the central theme of the Bible, the kingdom. And after we finish Hebrews, I think I'm going to spend, before we start the next book, I think I'm going to spend just a couple of weeks going through the kingdom, biblically from cover to cover so to give you guys a good overview of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the millennial kingdom that Jesus is coming to set up. And but that's what it's all about is the kingdom. It's it's you get to walk into a kingdom with Jesus as a co-heir, a co-laborer. That is a promise that nobody on earth right now can wrap their their head around. That is an incredible promise. That Jesus is made heir of all things, and you as the church are made a co-heir with him. That is amazing. You have so much to look forward to in what Jesus is going to set up. So don't lose sight of that. Our lives here are just a blip on a radar, but you are eternal, and you're going to walk into something with him. And that's exactly what Jesus means in 1 Corinthians 15. Then cometh the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Remember, that's at the end of the millennium. For he hath put all things under his feet, but when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. That's, it's going to end exactly how the Lord intended it at the beginning with Adam and Eve, that God would be all in all. And everything between that and the, and the kingdom finally being set up is this whole saga of a journey of the Lord trying to usher people into his kingdom and to get people saved, and to get people in a relationship with him. So that's what it's all about. So remember, you've got to stay steadfast, Revelation 3.11. Behold, I come quickly, hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. And once you're saved, again, you've got something you can lose, and it's not your salvation. It's, a, it's an inheritance with him. Okay, so in chapter 7, we studied pretty deeply the Melchizedekian Priesthood from Genesis 14, and and the Lord makes all of these connections between Jesus and Melchizedek. And it really started all the way back in Hebrews 5, and it carried all the way through chapter 7. So, what do we as God's people get out of this better priesthood? We're going to talk about that today in Hebrews 8. And so, what else is involved in this better priesthood? There's a better sanctuary, for it's in heaven. And there's a better priest, it's Jesus. There's a better sacrifice, it was once and for all, by him and him alone. There's a whole list of things that we get out of that. And so these chapters in Hebrews are some of the only places, now think about this, some of the only places in the entire New Testament that address what Jesus is doing right now. So we talk a lot in the New Testament about what he did and what he's going to do after he brings us home. There aren't a lot of places that talk about what he's doing presently on your behalf and my behalf as our high priest and this is one of those spots. And so this is really neat that you've got you have the one that created everything in existence praying on your behalf right now as your mediator. That is incredible. The one that died for you that rose again is your mediator right now. So remember Hebrews 7:18 from two weeks ago. For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. And like your sin that's been disannulled and put away, that old priesthood has been put away. The Levitical priesthood has been disannulled and put away. So remember in Hebrews 7, verse 28. For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity, but the world... The word of the oath, which was since the law, maketh the son who is consecrated forevermore. So note that there there was not one place, remember we talked about this last week, there was not one place to sit down in the tabernacle. The priest continually had to work. They had to absolutely continually work. They could have no rest because their sacrifice took nothing away. It was an outward sign of an inward problem but there was no remedy for it. And that's what Jesus has for us. He has the remedy. So there was the mercy seat, which was the lid to the Ark of the Covenant, but that seat was reserved, and it's reserved for Jesus in the millennium. And there was no place for the priest to sit because they were always working. But Jesus, however, his work in sacrificing himself and making a remedy for sin is complete which is why he's sitting at the right hand of the father he doesn't have to work anymore for that so his sacrifice was sufficient so fast forward into hebrews 10 for just a second look at 11 through 14 and every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins but this man after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever set down on on the right hand of God from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified now that that's a very intentional wording by the lord but forever he has forever perfected you if you're in him if you are in Jesus you are perfected and have access To the throne room of heaven, so the king is waiting on you to call him as your high priest. And I know a lot of Christians don't, so many around the world, you they miss this point that you have a counselor as your high priest that you can take anything to. My wife loves to put it this way: you don't have to go to him and catch up on how you got to where you are. You know, you don't have to tell the backstory. You don't have to say. What you went through as a child, what you're going through currently in your marriage, what you're experiencing with your children, whatever it is, you have a high priest that you can go to, and immediately take the problem to, and he starts to work in your life as his counsel, as, as your counselor. So it's one of the greatest titles of Jesus from Isaiah nine six, the counselor. Okay, so starting in in chapter eight today. Now of the things which we have spoken. This is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. So his work of redemption is finished and paid in full. There's no Levitical priest that ever sat down while performing priestly duties. His work in you after you're saved, the payment for any sin is done, but the work of sanctifying you is ongoing." And what do I mean by that? Well, there's three tenses of salvation in the Bible. When you are saved, you are what the the Word of God declares as being justified. You are justified to the Father, paid in full once and for all. You are removed from the penalty of sin. Okay, then you start what the Bible calls sanctification, where you are going through this process of rooting uprooting sin out of your life and laying at the foot of the Father in the throne room and letting him shape you and lead you and give you direction in your life. It's, the Bible calls that sanctification and you're being removed from the power of sin. So the penalty of sin, the power of sin, then at some point we're gonna hear that trumpet from 1 Thessalonians 4 and the church is going to go home and you will finally once and for all be glorified with him being removed from the presence of sin. So that's the process that we are on as Christians right now. So no Levitical priest ever sat down. Just think about that. Constantly working, constantly sacrificing. and But Jesus was able to sit down because of the work he did. There may be sin that needs to be uprooted and personal issues that need to be fully submitted. And he, as our king priest, is wanting to do that for you in your life right now. Whatever it is, he's sitting in heaven right now. And he will sit on earth on the throne of David. Remember, the angel Gabriel tells that to Mary when she's pregnant. Your son will sit on the throne of David. That throne did not exist when Jesus walked on the earth and Rome ruled the world. That is a political throne that is to be set up by Jesus after the seven-year tribulation. It is the throne of David that he's going to sit on. So the new covenant, this new covenant... Established by Jesus is the very place where the New Testament gets his name. It's a new covenant, New Testament. That's where it comes from. So in verse 2, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. So the true tabernacle, he is the high priest of the true tabernacle that sits in the heavens. And we're going to look at this, but Moses and the children of Israel pitched the temporary tabernacle while in the wilderness. Solomon built the first permanent temple, and and really when you dive into that, it probably was not God's will. Remember when David wanted to build it, the Lord asks him, who told you I need a temple? I didn't say that." that. What happened was David was looking at all of these pagan countries and religions surrounding israel and the goddesses and gods they worshiped had these vast glorious temples that they would go into and he's sitting there thinking well our god is the true god he needs a temple like them but see he was to be different okay that's why in isaiah 53 it says he has no form nor comeliness that you should desire him that's what the tabernacle was to model and we're going to look at that in just a minute It was to be a place of humility where you walk into a relationship with the Lord of the greatest relationship you can get into. But since Jesus came from the tribe of Judah, he would have never been considered a priest. And it's interesting, all through the New Testament, you see him in the courts of the temple while on the earth the first time. He never steps into the holy place or the holy of holies. He never does that on the earth the first time despite having the full authority over them. He could have stepped in at any moment and taken that seat on the mercy seat and, t- and sat down and ushered in the kingdom, but he chose to wait, and he chose to wait because of Israel's rejection to him. And he says that very plainly when he tells them, had you accepted me, I wouldn't have sent John the Baptist as the forerunner. It would have been I- Elijah, and we'd be ushering in the kingdom. And we're going to talk about that too in a minute but he never steps in there, never steps in there. The wilderness tabernacle was a shadow of the real tabernacle in the heavens. And so here's a diagram of the tabernacle. This is what Moses and the children of Israel walked around with and they pitched and they would set it up in the Shekinah glory, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit would rain down on it. And as soon as it would commune there with them, as soon as it would, it would raise, they would get up and follow it. So they were led by the Holy Spirit through the wilderness on where to go. Now, Jesus says something interesting. And again, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, Psalms 40, verse 7. In the volume of the book, it's written of me, says the Lord. And he's speaking directly of Jesus. In the volume of the book, it's written of me. Well, the tabernacle, there is more detail in the Bible about this one item, the tabernacle, than any other single item in the entire Bible. And think about that. Jesus is pointing us to there is something here that we need to dig into and figure out because in John 1.14, he says, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. That word in the Greek is tabernacled. He tabernacled amongst us. And so he's pointing us back to the tabernacle from the wilderness that he, he's saying, I am the tabernacle. So how does it point to him? Well, Hebrews 9.24 says, For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands. Remember, he didn't do that. We just talked about that. He never entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true. So when Moses went up to Mount Sinai, he was given the Ten Commandments and the law written in stone by the finger of God. And he also got the blueprints, kind of the engineering architectural drawings for the tabernacle. And he came down but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So this study in Hebrews, if you look at the tabernacle, it has to do and it lays out your walk with the Lord. And each step, you're getting into a deeper relationship with him. So remember, there was one door to get into the courts, the outer courts, and Jesus said, I am the door. The whole thing was transported and rested on silver sockets. So Levitically speaking, in the Old Testament, silver always speaks of blood. And so our covenant rests on none other than the blood of Jesus. They would, It rested on silver sockets. Remember when Judas betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver? So silver, again, speaking of blood. Well, you walked in, and the first thing was a bronze altar. It was the sin offering from Numbers 21, the brazen serpent that Jesus then laid claim to in John 13. So, as Moses lifted the serpent in the wilderness, the Son of Man must be lifted up. So, he's laying claim that what that serpent represented was sin being crucified on a cross. That's why Moses lifted it very high. And that serpent, can you go back one? Awesome. That serpent was made out of bronze, the metal that could withstand fire. And that's exactly what sin is, it can withstand fire. Jesus could withstand the fire of judging sin. So then you get to the bronze laver, and, and remember, Jesus said, I am the living water. You have to wash yourself with the water. Then the tabernacle showed up, and it was, had three layers of dead animal skins on the outside. It literally had, like Isaiah 53, verse 2, no form nor comeliness that you would want to get into it. From the outside, the world would look at it and go, this is a weird relationship. I don't really want to be in, in this Look at all these bloody animal skins and things. Well, but then you get inside of it, and it's the most beautiful place you could imagine in the relationship with him. It's where all the gold was, the finest yarn, the, the tapestry and the curtains were of the finest workmanship on earth. And there was a table of showbread. Remember, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. There was that, br- that candelabra, uh, candle that, that 12-branch candlestick, And Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He is then making our intercessions. Then you can get into the Holy of Holies after he's crucified because the veil was torn. And the Ark of the Covenant is made out of acacia wood. It's overlaid with gold. It's the same wood that was burning in the wilderness, the burning bush that Moses was drawn to. And if you say that closely, Moses was drawn to that burning bush not because it was on fire, because bushes burned all the time in the wilderness. It's because... It was on fire, but not consumed. That's what drew him to it. It was unique, and he goes to it, and Jesus speaks out of it, tell them, I am that I am, and he lays claim to that title from John 8. Tell them, remember he says, before Abraham was, I am, and that's when they picked up stones to kill him. So the whole tabernacle, it rests on our covenant with Jesus, and it models the relationship that we can get into with him. So it's a very... Very fruitful study, and we're going to look at it even in more detail next week in chapter 9. But in verse 3, for every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices, wherefore it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. So, for him to be a priest, he had to offer something. That's what the Holy Spirit is connecting here. The Levitical priests were through genealogy, and they were made a priest because of who their fathers were. But because they were priests, they had to offer something. So Jesus, as our priest, also had to offer something. And this is exactly what's modeled all the way back in Genesis 22.8. Again, in the volume of the book, it's written of me, says Jesus. But in Genesis 22, eight, remember when Isaac's looking for the offering, and Genesis says, or Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went, both of them together himself. That wording is intentional that God will provide himself as an offering. It's a foreshadow. It's a, it's a model of what Jesus would do for us. In that very spot, that very spot at the top of Mount Moriah is the very spot where Jesus was crucified. So many thousands of years later, the very top where Abraham was going to offer his son. One father did offer his, his divine son for us So the major role of the priest's office is to offer sacrifices. So Jesus is a priest, and he offered himself, obviously. So in verse 4, For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. So this verse seems to indicate that when the Holy Spirit wrote Hebrews, it had to be before 70 A.D., but after Jesus was crucified. So there's that 38-year period from 32 AD to 70 AD that it's, it's the same time frame as one generation in the wilderness, 38 years when Jesus died to when the temple is destroyed and Jerusalem is totally leveled by the Romans. And so what the Holy Spirit's saying here is that there are still priests offering these gifts according to the law, and they didn't have to do that anymore because Jesus met that. So it's just a clue that kind of gives you to the timing of When the Holy Spirit wrote Hebrews, and why he wrote it at this time, because he's trying to convince the Levitical priesthood, you don't need to do this anymore. You don't have to keep doing this, that Jesus took care of this. So in verse 5, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses, here it is again, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle, for see, saith he, that's the Lord, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. So God instructed Moses to build the tabernacle in the wilderness, and he gave him the dimensions and the instructions based on the original heavenly reality, the true tabernacle, like we just read in Hebrews 7, verse two. And this is what you see in Exodus twice in chapter 25. Verse nine, according to all that I show thee after the pattern of the tabernacle, And the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall ye make it. See, the Lord showed him not just the tabernacle, but he showed him every piece of furniture in it. This is how you make it. This is what you make it out of. This is how you fashion it. Because it's modeling the tabernacle we are all going to have access to when we get to heaven, when we get on the other side of this. In verse 40 And look that thou make them after their pattern, which was showed to thee in the mount. So again, it's on Mount Sinai. This is where Moses got this. Okay, in verse 6, But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. So remember, Aaron was a man from the tribe of Levi, Jesus the Son of God from the royal tribe of Judah. He was of the royal tribe, never the priestly tribe. That's one of the reasons why this whole concept is so difficult for the Jewish people to grasp. Because in their minds, their priest has to come from Levi, and Jesus didn't. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He turns the whole law upside down. So everything you think that you should know and do, he just takes care of it and turns it on its head. And that's why in Joshua 5, when the Lord Jesus is standing there with his sword drawn, and Joshua comes to him and says, are you for us or for the enemy? And Jesus says, with his sword drawn, and I, and I always picture him with it stuck in the ground, sitting there staring at Joshua with those eyes of fire, going, of the captain of the Lord's host, I have come. Take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. And Joshua knows exactly where he heard that before. It's from the burning bush with Moses again. And so Joshua falls to his knees in total surrender and worship to Jesus. See, Jesus is the one that fought the battle at Jericho. It's not Joshua. And Jesus turns everything upside down. That's why the Ark of the Covenant was not to go to war. It led the procession to Jericho. That's why they weren't supposed to do anything on the seventh day, and yet the children of Israel march around the city seven times on the seventh day. They do seven times as much, and the whole thing, they sound the trumpet, the voice of God, and the walls fall down. It's all a divine spiritual warfare that Jesus is leading. And that's why when they get to the promised land finally and they get settled, they totally blow it because they're looking around at all these other, other countries with kings going, you know, we need an earthly king. We need a guy that's tall and maybe has six fingers or whatever. And, and this, these weird guys that are leading these other countries. And the Lord, the Lord what they missed was Jesus was their king. And he was the one leading them. And as soon as they wanted an earthly king, he tells them, they're not going to like this, but okay, they'll get Saul. And then everything goes downhill from there. But Jesus, his priesthood was established by the power and authority of an endless life. So nothing was made perfect through Aaron's priesthood. Do not forget that. Well, everything was made perfect through the priesthood of Jesus. He's the mediator. And this, the Greek definition, when you get into this word, It's one who intervenes between two, either in order to make or restore peace and friendship, or form a compact, or for ratifying a covenant. And three times here in this book of Hebrews, he is known as the mediator. And here in this verse, chapter 8, verse 6, chapter 9, 15, and chapter 12, verse 24. So the Lord's going to hit this concept kind of over and over now, this new covenant being manda- mediated by Jesus, it was prophesied all the way back in Jeremiah. So what we're going to look at, and, and just stay with me on this for a minute, and you need to take this to the Lord from Acts 17, 11, and First John two twenty seven, and just trust him to teach you and search the scriptures to prove these things be so. So at the end of Hebrews 8 here, we're going to read about this quote out of Jeremiah 31. And we're going to see and really kind of study where does this apply. But Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31, Behold the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand, to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which husbandmen unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. So after some period of time that we're in the middle of right now, I will put my law in their inward parts and write in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So that is exactly what the Lord does for you, right? He remembers your sin no more, but that linkage in Jeremiah 31 is to a covenant that is yet future with the house of Israel. There's, there's something coming, so we're going to look at this at the end of Hebrews 8. It's very, very interesting. So the new covenant is then further described in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 3, 1 Timothy 2, Galatians 3 through 4, Hebrews 8 and 9, which we're in the middle of, Hebrews 12, it's kind of all over the New Testament describing this, the covenant that he has with us right now as the church, this new covenant that we are in. And there's also a new covenant that's waiting for the house of Israel. That's a quote from Jeremiah 31. But look at 1 Timothy 2, 5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men and the man, Christ Jesus. Look at Galatians 3. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come, the seed. Remember Genesis 3.15, when God declares war on Satan, your seed will be at enmity with the seed of the woman. That is a biological contradiction the seed is not in the woman. It is speaking prophetically of the virgin birth to come, of Jesus. So he is the seed of the woman. And it had to be because of a blood curse that the Lord sets on Jehoiachin and Jeremiah that that no seed from him would rule and sit on the throne of David. So God cuts off the line of David in Jeremiah, and that's why when you get to the New Testament in Matthew and Luke, the genealogies go two different ways, one through the second surviving son of Bathsheba, and one through David. And they get down, and Mary is from the line that was not cursed. And so everything could be, could be adopted, all those promises to Jesus, from the daughters of Zelophehad, from Numbers. Anyway, not to get on too much of a rabbit trail. But. So in Galatians 3, the seed should come to whom the promise was made. It was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator, Now, a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid, for if there had been a law given, which would have given life, verily, righteousness should have been by the law. So if the law could give any life, there would not have been need of a mediator, a new mediator, and a new priesthood to show up. And we've hit on that a lot since Hebrews 5. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. That's where you are. You are in that role, in that, in that covenant with the Lord now that's made by blood, by none other than the blood of the Son of God, and you're in a covenant with him that is eternal that he cannot back out of and you can't get out of if you wanted to. It's kind of like, remember when he has a covenant with Abraham and they take the sacrifice They split it in two and they lay it down and the Lord puts Abram at that time under a deep sleep and he alone recites the words of the covenant and he walks in a figure eight through those two pieces of the sacrifice. See, that covenant had no reliance on Abram even keeping it. It was all on him. And that's the same when you get into a relationship with salvation with the Lord. It's all up to him. It's not up to you to keep it. It's up to you to then be obedient to him. So Hebrews 8, verse 7, For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. So that first covenant fell short because it could not remedy the issues it exposed. It could only bring to your attention the faults and issues, but never take them away. It could have, if it could have taken them away, there would be no need for a new one. And that's what the Lord's hitting on here. So in verse eight, for finding fault with them, he saith, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. Here's that quote from Jeremiah Jeremiah 31. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Okay, look at Romans eight, one through three. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. See, because sin had rulership over your flesh, Jesus had to become flesh to condemn sin for you in the flesh so that it could not have authority over you. So in verse 9, Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. See, the Israelites rejected the Lord over and over and over. And when you read the Old Testament, if you're anything like, like when I went through it the first time, and you're reading it, you're going, How on earth did these people who watched all of these incredible miracles, they were saved out of Egypt, they watched their cattle live and the Egyptians die, they watched darkness come upon the the houses of the Egyptians while they had light, all of these things, the death of the firstborn, the locusts, the hail mingled with fire and blood, the water turned to blood, they're seeing all of this. How in the world could they be delivered and walk through the Red Sea on dry land and 48 hours later be fashioning a golden calf and say, yeah, this is the God that took us out of Egypt. If you've ever really thought about that, you think they have to be lunatics. But it's the same thing we do today, right? When you are saved by the power of an endless life and you're walking with the Lord, you have the opportunity to submit and let him and his authority alone heal everything in your life and take care of you. And yet how many Christians delay and delay and don't understand it and let it still fester right in their lives. And and the world wonders why are marriages in the world of Christianity worse off than they are in the secular world. Well, it's because submission and obedience and not trusting in what he can do in you. So the Israelites rejected the Lord over and over and look at Romans 11:25. See, they are set aside. National Israel is set aside right now as a nation. It started with the Lord wanting everyone on earth to be a part of his family. Well, Adam and Eve rebelled, rejected him. He tried it again over and over, lots of rebellion. So he says, okay, if I can't have everybody, I'll try to have a nation. So he picks Abraham. He's going he's to form a nation out of him. They go on, well, that nation rejects him. Okay, well, I can't have them as a nation. And here they are. They reject him when Jesus shows up, and it's Romans 11:25. for I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. That's a term for the church, the fullness of the Gentiles. So Jewish people can be a part of the church now, and all, all the nations of the world make up the church. But... Jesus wanted the kingdom to be ushered in by Israel, and they rejected him. So blindness, in part, has been put on the nation. So as you see blindness start to fall off of Israel, as rabbis that have been against Jesus forever start to come out and turn the hearts of the nation to Jesus as their Messiah, just recognize that blindness is getting thinner and thinner, which means the church is getting fuller and fuller, and we're about to go home. That's, that's the sign you're looking for. So in Hebrews 8, verse 10, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. So he's quoting back to Jeremiah 31. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. So after those days... See, after the tribulation, when Jesus shows up in Isaiah 63, okay, Israel has to petition him to return from Hosea 5.15. They have to acknowledge their offense, that they missed him the first time. They're driven to the brink of utter desolation in the seven-year tribulation. It's the time of Jacob's trouble, Israel. They're driven to the brink. They cry out to the Lord, forgive us, we missed it, and boom, Revelation 19 will happen and those dimensions, Jesus is just going to tear them open, and he's going to be on that white horse from Revelation 19. We're all with him. We ride down with him. All of the enemies have surrounded Jerusalem. They're about to destroy it. He vanquishes them with the word of his mouth. You can see the details of that in Zechariah 14. Then Isaiah 63 happens. He's drenched in the blood of his enemies, not his own blood, and he goes to save the house of Israel, and he brings them out And he sets up the kingdom. And prophetically speaking, it will be the first time in the history of the earth that every Jewish person will know him. There is no more, teach your neighbor, try to convince them. Everyone from the house of Israel will know him. And that's I I failed to put this other verse in here, but look up in Jeremiah. There is a verse outside chapter 31 that prophesies that in the millennium, there will be no Jewish unbelievers. There will be unbelievers elsewhere of other nations, but none of the Jews. Very, very interesting. And we also we covered that in Revelation 19 when we did uh, three weeks on that chapter in, in Revelation. So you can go check that out again. So this new covenant is established in you also by the Holy Spirit. So there's a new covenant with the church that you, have, you are in if you're saved in Jesus. The Jews can be a part of, but there's going to come a time, just like when the flood of Noah happened, that the opportunity to get in that ark, the door is closed. There's going to come a time that the opportunity to get into the church, that door is closed. And God closes that relationship as the most intimate relationship he's ever had with any people on planet Earth because he has placed his Holy Spirit in you permanently. That's never happened to any other group of people on Earth. He didn't do that in the Old Testament. But when that's closed... Then you have a small gap of time. The Antichrist must rise to power from, he, from Daniel chapter 9. He has to affirm a covenant with Israel, and that triggers the start of the final seven year period. And at the end of that, when Jesus comes back, he establishes a new covenant also with the house of Israel, where none of them shall not know him. So the Holy Spirit gives us, gives us understanding of his word and provides the power. To conquer sin in our lives. Romans 8, 4, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So when you walk after the Spirit, you begin to slow down, you begin to live in peace, you walk in light, and you abide in the Most High. And walking with God, I'm telling you, it is the most incredible thing you can do in your life to walk with him and and don't get too far in front of him and don't get too far behind. Get right in lockstep with him, step by step of where he's leading. Now, you can't do that unless you are in complete and full surrender. So this is what the Lord means in Amos 3.3. Can two walk together except they be agreed? You have to be in agreement with him. The new covenant's established in you. Oh, did you go to the next slide, Austin? Sorry, there you go. Hebrews 8, 11, so, and they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, know the Lord, for all shall know me, against a quote from Jeremiah 31, from the least to the greatest, and that gets fulfilled in the millennium. This is also prophesied in Isaiah 11. Now, I could have listed out tons of verses where this is prophesied in the Bible, but just look at this one, that all shall know him from the least to the greatest, Isaiah 11, 9. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. Now remember, his holy mountain is Mount Zion from Psalms 2 and all over the Old Testament. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That will be a day that we can all look forward to. So in verse 12 here, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities while I remember no more. So the Old Covenant had an emphasis on what you had to do for God. The New Covenant is entirely focused on what God did for you. So a little bit of a reversal there. God accomplished it entirely for you on the cross, and the Old Covenant sins were remembered continuously. In the New Covenant, they're not remembered, and they are removed as far as the east is from the west. Look at Psalms 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Now, this is intentional. God uses that language intentionally because you could only travel north so far. You'd get to the North Pole, you'd stop, and then you'd be traveling south again. Same way if you go south. You can only go south so far. You can travel east and west continuously and just go around the earth forever. There's no measurement of distance from the east to the west. It is infinitely in both directions. And so that's what God's declaring here in Psalms 103, that your sin, your transgressions, they are removed from you when you become saved as far as the east is from the west. It's an, it's an immeasurable distance. In John 129, the next day John seeth Jesus coming to him and saith, behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. He took it off of you as far as the east is from the west. So verse 13, about wrapped up here. In that he saith, a new covenant he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. So the old covenant is not only old, but it is to vanish away. It would not be much longer before the temple was destroyed. We mentioned that earlier, it's 70 AD. So that old priesthood was to be put away, and the old covenant would completely vanish So priests, this is interesting, in Leviticus 10, verse 6, priests were not to tear their clothes. They were never to to tear their garments. In Leviticus 10, 6, and Moses said unto Aaron and and unto Eliezer and unto Ithamar and his sons, uncover not your heads, neither rend your clothes lest ye die. So rending your clothes, you see this all the time in the Old Testament, when there would be Something bad would happen, and they would get sackcloth and ashes, right? They'd tear their clothes, and they would dump ashes on their head, and they would mourn. It was a sign of mourning. But priests were not to do that. They weren't to tear their clothes. Interestingly enough, when Jesus was on trial, the high priest at that time was Calpheus, and he tore his clothes, and he wasn't supposed to do that. And it's signifying that at that moment, the priesthood was removed from Israel and put upon Jesus. In Matthew 26, 65, this is where you see that. Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, he hath spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witness? Behold, now ye have heard his blasphemy. Can you imagine being the high priest, looking at your creator, saying, he's the one speaking blasphemy? That is That is something else. I'm sure Jesus has had very stern words for Caiaphas at this point as he's passed on. But he tore his clothes, and he wasn't supposed to do that. And so the priesthood symbolically was taken from Israel at that moment. So think about all these covenants. I've just listed eight. There's lots of covenants in the Bible, but there's the the covenant made in Eden, Genesis 2.16, the covenant made with Adam in Genesis 3.15, the Noah covenant with the rainbow, in Genesis nine sixteen the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12, the Mosaic covenant in Exodus 19, the land grant to Israel from all the way from Genesis 15, it's confirmed again in Deuteronomy 30, the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7, and there's going to be a new covenant with Israel in Jeremiah 31. And the covenant that you are in right now, the church was hidden in the Old Testament. It was hidden. And so that's why that covenant of being the church is never described in the Old Testament. It is hinted at several places. Now, after you you have the benefit of looking back, you can see where it's hinted at, but it's never boldly proclaimed because the church was hidden in the Old Testament. In fact, there's 24 of those spots in the Bible where the church is described. You can see it in a in a time period that's hidden, but it's never called out. And that links to why... The Lord calls us the 24 elders in Revelation 4 and 5. There's a linkage there. So to wrap up Hebrews 8, what I always love to do, a call to his people. You, know, you have a responsibility to be in the word of God. You cannot go out, just like in, in the book of Numbers. Remember when the Lord would have manna rain on the earth and show up? There's a principle there. He, you could no, not go out and get it for your children or for your spouse or for a friend. Every person had to go get it out on their own. And that's what the Lord has to do with you in building your faith. You cannot get it from someone else. You've got to go out and get it on your own. And so what is faith? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And Jesus is the substance of all that we hope for and why is it important? Because the Lord declares in Hebrews 11:6, 6, for it is impossible to please him without it. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And that's how important it is to him that we go out and collect it. And so how do you go get it, right? Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. You've got to be in the word of God on your own to build your faith. So if you are not on a reading plan, if you're not in the Bible daily, you are doing your relationship with the Lord a disservice. You are you are forsaking what God has preserved for you to give you everything that you need to be victorious in your life and to walk in complete faith and strength. And then it gives you the strength to tear down strongholds. When the children of Israel came into is into the promised land there were three main areas that they'd never listened to god they never uprooted idolatry and they never wiped off the face of the earth the enemies of the lord in three spots the gaza strip the west bank and the Golan heights and that's all in joshua and etc they never did it and so because of that those are the three same areas you see in the news all the time today it still bothers them The Golan Heights, the Gaza Strip, the West Bank, it's in the news all the time as warfare going on. And the children of Israel had a duty to get that up out of their lives. And you have a responsibility to do the same thing in your life. If God's telling you to tear something down, tear it down. And don't let it linger in a closet somewhere thinking it's okay, I can make it, I can live through this. God's got me you've got to surrender it to him and get it out of your life so that it bothers you and your family and your children never again. And whatever that is, if there's something like that in your life, I'm encouraging you to get a hold of it and surrender it in the throne room of the universe because you've got to completely eradicate it because then you go the next step. You can't stand in the warfare that we're in if you don't. From Joshua 7, because they had a curse things in their lives. They fell in the warfare. So if you're going to go out into this war on behalf of your community, on behalf of your walk with the Lord, on behalf of your children, if you have anything accursed in your life, you will you will be wounded in battle. You will go out into battle, and you're going to come back lame and damaged because you're not going to have the full armor of God. You've got to surrender it and the only weapon of our warfare is the word, right, from Ephesians 6. And then the heavy artillery is for all of us to bond together and be in prayer and go to prayer for one another. You do have a king priest that can conquer it all on your behalf. And so if you're here today or if you're watching this online and you're not born again, it's really quite simple. It's Romans 10:9 that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth, the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It is that simple. You become born again from John 3, as Jesus is talking in Nicodemus. And how can one be unborn after that? You can't. You are a new creation in Christ, never to go away again. And all of your friends that are not saved, all of those around the world that are not saved, the thing that they miss is that they are eternal whether they know it or not. It's just a matter of where are they going to spend it. Because time, again, it's a function of mass, gravity, and acceleration. And the real you has no mass, thus the real you is not subject to time. Thus, you are eternal, whether you know it or not. And your friends and your family members that don't know the Lord, they are going to spend eternity somewhere. So be a witness to them. Time is of the essence get out there and witness and declare the gospel with all of your friends and family and then start that journey with them of the greatest commandment that jesus said right to make disciples that's to make learners people that are self-feeders people that will open their bible and study the word of god together go and make disciples and what jesus does in isaiah 118 come now and let us reason together saith the lord Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And that's what Jesus does. So if you need anything, there's our email address, newcitychurch.love at gmail.com. We love hearing from you if you're watching this online. We got a very encouraging message from a pastor and his wife in Kenya a few weeks ago that they watch us every week. Very cool just to hear people all around the world. I have no idea how they find us but somehow people find us. <laughs> and it's a, it's a blessing. Just I want all of you to know that you're, you're doing a great thing for God's people all over the world. They are, they are being edified and strengthened in places where studying the Bible is frankly outlawed. They can be murdered for it. They're not allowed to have it. And yet somehow the Holy Spirit's leading them to study it with us. Praise God, it's amazing. So with that, I'll close us out in prayer. Lord, we just thank you so much for this day and God we thank you again for Hebrews 8 and Lord we ask that your word does not return void and that Lord you you sharpen in us our sensitivity to the spirit to the spirit of the living God that indwells each of us and holy spirit speak to us in the week ahead speak to us and show us those areas that we need to get right with you to be that unashamed bride looking for always, always looking for your return. Lord, we love you and we praise you this day. Be with us as we leave this place and we thank you, Lord, for going forth to conquer in our land as we pray and humble ourselves before you to take back and to redeem the land on your behalf. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' mighty name, amen.